0: This week, Jason and I wanted to start a series of episodes about what we learned in Bible college and how we wish people understood it outside of ministers. And so it's just a couple of things that we want to share with you guys. This week, we're going to talk about the Bible and what it is. So let's get into it.
1: Welcome back to Pocket Theology everybody. I am here with my buddy Martin. Martin, say hello. Hey, what up fam? It's real bussin over here. I think the only word in that sentence that really bothered me was the word bussin cuz not because like I don't understand it or even because it's like Gen Z slang cuz normally I just hate Gen Z slang. It's because the way it gets used so often makes it feel inappropriate. I just And I know it just means like good but it gets used in very sketchy ways very often.
0: I've never seen it it. used very sketchy ways. The majority of the time that I've seen it used is talking about food.
1: I have seen that a lot too. Anyways. You had the idea that we just kind of do like a general episode on what's the Bible? Like, what is it? And before you guys turn off the podcast, like we don't mean like, The Bible is a book. That's the end of the podcast. But like, where does it come from? What do we mean by inspiration? Why do we listen to it? Just a general background on the Bible. And you said right before we started recording, which I think is a valid point. You said you were amazed and I'm amazed as well that we haven't done an episode on this yet. It seems like one of those base level things you do, but we haven't. So, Martin, give give us like the 30,000 foot view. What is the Bible? Don't get too into detail because we'll ask more questions and go deeper on certain subjects. But just what is the Bible? When I say, Hey, I was reading my Bible the other day. What what on earth am I talking about? The 30,000 view foot or foot view. No, I like the first version
0: better. The 30,000 view foot. Yep, that's going to stick. The 30,000 view foot would be that the Bible is the inspired writings that Christians believe teach about God. It's a collection of 66 letters, scrolls, books that we have compiled into one binding. And so it's not its own book, but it is a collection of inspired writings.
1: Yeah. And I would I would only add one word Boo. For that definition. Um, I would say inspired writings Christians believe to teach truly about God. And I almost want to say truly and fully, but Christians don't necessarily believe in any tradition that the Bible teaches everything there is to know about God, because at least Christians who really dig into theology would all say you can't know everything about God. He's too big. He's too much. You can't comprehend that much. But maybe the Bible is... A collection of works that teaches truly and more completely than any other work about God. But that makes the definition too long. So inspired writings Christians believe to teach truly about God. The first word you use there is the word inspired. That's a loaded word, ain't it? It's a very loaded word. And it often shows up alongside another word, the word infallible, depending on the tradition that you grow up in. So let's start with the word inspired, because that's at least that's a biblical word. The word infallible does not show up in Scripture. The word inspired does in certain translations. What do we mean when we say Christians believe the Bible is inspired? So the
0: reference that you're talking about in Scripture to it referring to itself as inspired is in 2 Timothy 3.16 when Paul tells Timothy that these are God breathed or inspired by God and I personally like God breathed better mm-hmm. because I think it, first of all when you like really study scripture you understand that there are certain images that are supposed to mean things and I just think it's really interesting that The literal translation for the Greek word is God breathed and the, I want to say the only other thing in scripture that God breathed into is Adam in Genesis.
1: Yes. Yeah.
0: And so you see, it's kind of like a point back to that story of Mm -hmm. God created man. God has created these writings so that we could learn about him kind of thing.
1: Yeah. God's breath is referenced in some judgment oracles, but it's not like the same kind of phrasing. He's not breathing into something. He's more like blowing something down, you know, like big bad wolf style. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. The only other time that he breathes into something is when he's making humankind and humankind is unique from other animals because they have fancy Latin term, Martin. Imago day. Yeah. They have the Imago day. They have the image of God. They're made to resemble God, not physically, but spiritually, intellectually. They have the same kind of creativity that God has. They can govern on God's behalf. They can have a special relationship with God that animals can't. So human beings are these. If you understand the creation narratives to describe God making a temple for himself, and we don't have enough time to get into that, but that is what they're doing. They're describing the galaxy as a temple God's going to live in. The human beings are his idols. It's it's always the last thing you did in a temple is you put an idol, a statue or a symbol of the God in the temple. And that represented the being coming to dwell in the temple like they were supposed to. In the Genesis creation narrative, human beings are that idol. And they're placed into the universe to say, God is coming home. He's going to come settle down in this temple he built for himself. And we are his representatives were, for lack of a better way to put it, a little piece of him and scriptures describe the same way that we are, which should indicate to you, if nothing else, it's really important. And where scripture is, in some sense, God is so when we talk about
0: inspiration, I'm going to steal Millard Erickson's definition in his Christian theology book. He has an entire chapter on this. Mm -hmm. And so he starts out and he says, By inspiration of scripture, we mean that supernatural influence of the Holy Spirit on the scripture writers that rendered their writings an accurate record of the revelation or that resulted in what they wrote actually being the word of God. So when we talk about inspiration, Millard Erickson uses big words. I'm going to use not as big words. The idea is inspiration is what makes what Paul wrote and what Peter wrote and what Isaiah wrote and what Moses supposedly wrote different from what some rando could write. Uh, The idea is inspiration is what makes what they wrote
1: the actual words of God. Yeah, it sounds like there's three pieces to the definition that you gave, at least as I hear it. Supernatural influence is like part number one. Part two, there is a human writer involved. And part three, the result of the supernatural influence is that it makes their writings accurate in the way they speak about God. Yep. Now, this word, and we will kind of circle back to inspiration, but I think it's important at this point because of the definition we just heard to talk about that other I word, the word infallible. Inspired and infallible are put next to each other in a lot of especially conservative traditions Uh, Independent fundamentalist Baptists are like the most famous for really pounding the table for the doctrine of infallibility, which just states that the scriptures are accurate in everything they describe, literally accurate in everything they describe. So the scriptures, if you take this doctrine very seriously, the scriptures at the Battle of Ai say that the sun stopped in the sky. So if the sun stopped moving, that must mean that the sun revolves around the earth. And there are actually people in some very conservative traditions, some very I won't even call them conservative because that's kind of an insult to conservatives in very fringe movements in Christianity that'll claim that in spite of all of modern science, the sun revolves around the earth because this doctrine of infallibility, when it's really, really wooden. Means that whether the Bible is describing something scientific, whether it's describing something historical, no matter what it describes, it has to be literally 100 percent true. So it can't use metaphor. It can't use symbolism. So when Revelation says there's going to be a beast that comes out of the sea, there's literally going to be a giant dragon monster thing that's going to walk out of the sea and try to take over the world. We don't like to tip our hands on this sort of stuff, but I feel like it's important here for us to say we do not believe in that kind of infallibility. So the reason why I think it's so important for us to say we don't believe in that kind of infallibility is we don't think Christianity truly teaches that God intends in scripture to teach anything that is demonstrably untrue. Like the sun stopping in the sky at the battle of AI is not to indicate that the sun revolves around the earth. That's insane. It's just to say, not even really symbolically that it appears to the people that the sun stopped the effect for the people standing on the earth and looking up is, Oh, the sun's not going through the sky like it normally does. And I think most people, when they read their Bible, they, they can grasp things like that, but it gets a little bit stickier when you start talking about things like, is Jonah a real person? which we have a whole other podcast on? So go back and listen to that. If you believe in infallibility, then you have to say, no, because the Bible describes Jonah. He must be a literal historical person.
0: In a wooden infallibility. There are a lot of people who believe that scripture is infallible, but that there are sections that are not intended to be literal. And so they they would say Jonah is one of those that most people don't point to, but it usually gets pointed to in Revelation, like with the beast walking out of the water. That's that's a metaphor for a mm-hmm. leader coming out of, well, the seas would have been like hell essentially, but that's where yeah. all the dead people yeah. are.
1: But we can do a different episode on on Revelation because yeah. that's that's my baby. I love yeah.
0: Revelation. I'll, I'll let you have that baby.
1: Yeah. Um, I don't want to touch a, your a freaky baby baby. with a ten foot pole. It's a really freaky baby, but I love it anyway. But anyways. Um, Revelation
0: is usually where that um, metaphor card gets pulled because there's a lot of yeah. weird stuff in Revelation that no one actually yeah. expects to literally happen. Like, for example, my contention,
1: my contention, and some people definitely do believe that it will literally happen. Quite a few people, I would say. I mean, you don't get, get these panics about, oh, the microchips are the mark of the beast. Oh, vaccines are the mark of the beast or whatever this is going to get shadow banned because I said that even though I'm saying it's untrue, but Oh, well, you don't get crazes like that. You don't get the satanic panic. If people know not to read revelation hyper literally. So there's definitely a lot of Christians who believe that revelation should be read hyper literally. I'll also say I, if I'm trying to be really generous and yeah, I agree with you that there's like a spectrum of like totally fallible to totally infallible that Christians sit on. But my contention is if you say you believe in infallibility, you need to believe in infallibility and you need to take your own belief seriously throughout the entire course of scripture. And I think a lot of people who say they believe in infallibility, you're correct, don't actually believe like that revelation is all literal or that there's no symbolism in the Psalms or whatever. But they don't really believe in infallibility. They're just using the word and they actually mean something else by it. So I yeah. I think it's I, I know I'm hammering this a lot in what's supposed to be an over an overview podcast, but infallibility is something I grew up with. And I think it's a dangerous doctrine because it requires you to stick your fingers in the ear and in, in your ears and yell la 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 and ignore science and ignore history and ignore archaeology. And frankly, it breeds stupid Christians that don't know how to read their Bibles correctly. And if you are someone listening to this podcast who has been taught infallibility, my bet would be you're somewhere on that spectrum between totally fallible and infallible, but you probably don't actually believe in infallibility, but there are some Christians out there who believe in wooden infallibility, who truly take that doctrine to its extreme. And that's dangerous. It's it's going to make you read your Bible wrong. And it's going to make you sound ridiculous to people that aren't Christian because it's, it's a nonsensical thing to believe. I'm going to add something. So Jason's
0: sharing why a good understanding of what your Bible is, is important. His is on infallibility. My point is on where it came from. So growing up, I never got told that the authors may or may not have used their own words to describe things that God Mm -hmm. talks about. I never got told that like the authors didn't just sit there while God whispered in their ear and wrote mm. down everything that they said. I didn't get told any of that. The The tradition that I grew up in kind of presupposed that absolutely everything is word for word, God's word, and someone wrote it down. And that sounds a lot like another faith system from the Abrahamic
1: tree. Do you know which one I'm talking about, Jason? Actually, it sounds like two of them because The Book of Mormon, supposedly, was just on golden tablets, but also the Quran was supposedly dictated directly to Muhammad by the angel Gabriel on behalf of God. So there's two other Abrahamic religions out of four major ones that say, no, our holy text was written word for word.
0: Yep. Which I always think is really interesting because Christians are always trying to say the Muslims, they're the bad people.
1: But we definitely took our idea of inspiration from them. So, yeah. Yeah, but I mean, to be fair, yeah, Islam was around and was a major global religion long before this Western wooden idea of like God whispered in someone's ear. And that's how we got the Bible came around. So I don't know if we can really say that it was stolen from Islam or stolen very from Islam, But it looks very similar at the very least. It does. It does. Because so. the church never, for its for the first thousand plus years of its history, that was never how that was taught. That's not how that was understood. People understood no, Luke sounds like Luke, Paul sounds like Paul. Inspiration wasn't just going into a trance and like having a seizure and writing the book and having no idea because it's the words of God, it's not your words. That's not how the church ever understood where the scriptures came from. Yeah. So on that
0: note, um, like I said, this is this is one of the th- reasons that we think this is really important because it helps people to actually understand like what they're looking at.
1: But yeah, yeah. to not have unrealistic expectations. Can I just put a bow like on what we just said? Try to summarize yes. it. tie it up. When we say the scriptures are inspired, we think it's really important to understand. That means that the Bible is brought about by God that he influenced people to create it. That doesn't mean that he took over their bodies and made them speak a certain way. That means that he did have a strong hand in the creation of it. So God brought about the creation of the Bible so that it would speak truly about God, morality, and the nature of human beings. It usually accurately describes history, but it doesn't always intend to. When you read your gospel, sometimes they disagree with each other, because the point of the Bible is not to be a history book. It's to teach you what it needs to teach you about God, morality and human beings and the nature of the universe. I could add on to that. So we reject wooden infallibility. I would say I just reject infallibility because I don't think there's any other kind. But whatever, that's semantics. We reject infallibility, or at least the wooden kind, and we embrace inspiration that God brought about through human authors. This book that speaks truly about him, about morality, about humans, about the universe. So I want to jump in on
0: inspiration real quick and just explain the spectrum that it operates on. This is also from Millard Erickson, but he has five different views of inspiration that he talks about. And they range from anywhere from um, what he calls the intuition theory, which argues that the writers of your Bible could write God's word because they just knew God well. They were really spiritual people, so what they wrote was God's words. And that's the super left side of that spectrum. Uh, He even says, like, this is a really liberal view that most Christians aren't going to take.
1: If you hold to that sort of view, then you might conclude And at the same time, people like the Buddha also had a great connection to the divine. So what they wrote was every bit as true. Like, that's a conclusion that you can draw out of that view. Also not where we're going to land.
0: Yeah. Um, And on the other side of this spectrum includes what he calls dictation theory, which is what we talked about, where you essentially go into a trance and God writes through your hand. So... Uh, That's that whole spectrum. Like I said, there's five views. I fall more on a third point of it, which I'm going to describe as he calls it the dynamic theory. And essentially what it is, is I'm actually going to read how he defines it because I like it better than explaining it. Sounds good. The spirit of God works by directing the writer to the thoughts or concepts and allowing the writer's own distinctive personality to come into play in the choice of words and expressions. I think that this best describes how, especially Greek and Hebrew scholars read their scriptures. I mean, writers had different styles. It gets talked about a lot in Hebrews when you're trying to figure out who wrote it, is the style of writing. Everyone clearly had their own separate style. Paul liked to make up words and then tell you what they meant or make you guess what they meant. Um... Peter like to use a lot of like Old Testamenty words. I mean, you can you can kind of tell when people write things. It's the same thing if Jason or I wrote something, you could if you knew us well enough, you could probably tell which one of us wrote it. So I think it accounts for that really well. It accounts mm-hmm. for their sections in I think the Corinthian letters where like certain certain people will argue like Paul says, well, I believe this, but God says this, and that's part of where the whole, like, women shouldn't speak in congregation thing is, because that's what Paul says. That's not what God says, but, I mean, it accounts for a lot of weird stuff in your scripture that I think if we just believed God put someone in a trance and wrote it, then we'd have a lot more questions than just believing that they got to write it themselves and use their own words and their vocabulary.
1: Yeah. Um, you, you crossed over between books. Um, he says, I don't know if it's in first or second Corinthians. He does specifically say like, this is Paul speaking, not God. And it's instructions about remarriage. I, if I recall correctly, um, but then he also says in First Timothy, when he's talking about women speaking, he says, I do not allow women to teach nor to have authority. And so then people like me would argue from that that Paul is speaking for himself from his point of view. This is what I don't allow for cultural reasons. Not saying this is a demand that God places on all churches at all times. Um Anyways, yeah, there's changes in expression. There's changes in genre Um, when you're reading Revelation and there's all these crazy images like there's this woman and she's associated with the sun and moon and stars. And that's weird. What on earth does that mean? Well, it's not that there's actually going to be a giant woman floating in the sky one day. That's not what that means at all. Apocalyptic literature, which is the genre of revelation is called apocalypse which means in greek apocalypsis means means revealing so it's revealing literature but it's a genre just like a poem is a genre it's a type of writing prose is a different type of writing screenwriting is a different kind of writing uh, this is just a, it's just a type it's a type of writing a way of writing that has its own style and it's heavily symbolic and it appeals heavily to the old testament so you look back and where do the sun moon and stars show up in the same place well joseph's vision when he's not Joseph, father of Jesus, Joseph in the Old Testament, in Genesis Joseph, the guy who gets sold in slavery by his brothers, he has this dream of the sun and moon and stars showing reverence for him, and they symbolize his father, mother, and brothers. So the sun, moon, and stars become a symbol for the entirety of the tribes of Israel because all of Israel and Genesis are descended from these individuals. So when you're reading Revelation, you need to read it, Symbolically, and John was inspired to write it, but not put into a trance and forced to write out exactly what God tells him to do. Rather, he writes out this crazy prophecy laden symbolic thing in a style that his readers would have recognized. It's very alien to us today because no one writes like that anymore. But his readers in that day would have gone, Oh, yeah, no, I know what John's doing here. And they would have immediately gotten even the freaky stuff like the number of the beast. It's an example of something called hematria, which is a type of like, think of puns and math problems. Having a baby is basically what they are using numbers to make word puns. And people would have seen the number 616 or the later version of a 666 that we're more familiar with. They would have seen it and immediately not known what he was doing. It was a riddle and they would have understood it, and they wouldn't have freaked out about it and thought it was microchips or vaccines. They would have known it was a riddle for someone that he's talking smack about.
0: Jason, you sound like you have some personal problems with this.
1: I think one of the most dangerous things that is common, accepted, and even encouraged in many churches is perceiving of the Bible as this book that is so, so mystical and so far beyond us and so exacting in the way that it was written that there's no room for interpretation. You just look at it and there's one meaning and it's obviously clear. And if you don't get that meaning, you must be a dirty sinner that hates Jesus. Like it creates these hateful churches that look nothing like our Lord and savior. So I react very strongly to it. I mean, I kind of decided to devote my entire life to helping people read their Bibles. Well, so obviously it's something that really matters to me. (laughs)
0: Let's keep moving though. So, all right.
1: We've talked about what the Bible is,
0: and we've also aired our grievances in what the Bible is. As Jason has a problem with infallibility, and I have a problem with
1: inspiration. So, you did Jason not can lie, that and that I way. can't
0: have Jesus.
1: You have a problem with certain understandings of inspiration. Yes. Anyways, you, you believe in dynamic inspiration. Yeah, I want to bring up uh, maybe this, this one might be a little bit quicker. Um, so I'm just going to get your answer and then I'll just respond with the way that I normally explain it to people and then we'll just keep trucking. So it only take a minute. What's the point of the Bible? Why do we have it? What a dumb question. I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's kind of the, an important question to answer.
0: It is. The See, this is also where I have a problem because I got taught growing up that the Bible was my golden rule book and that everything mm-hmm. that is in the Bible is what I should be doing. But then I also yeah. didn't get told about a prostitute being cut into 12 pieces and sent to the it, tribes of Israel. Yeah. You because got taught then I would that have been Samson a was killer. a really
1: nice dude and he was like Captain America. He was Captain Israel. Um, You didn't get taught much about David cheating with a woman and then murdering her husband You definitely didn't get taught about people trying to have non-consensual fun times with angels and Mm -hmm. Sodom. Yep. There's a lot of stuff that you didn't get taught when you were little when people said, oh, it's your golden rule book. Do everything it says. You should not do everything the Bible says. It says a lot of bad things, but it makes it It very obvious when bad things are happening (laughs) and that you shouldn't do them.
0: Yes. So that's where I end up with a problem is I got told, like, this is what I should be doing. I should read this. Do what it says, and that's not what my Bible is. My Bible isn't a list of things to do and not to do, there are those Mm -hmm. um, specifically in Matthew chapters five and six, and in certain sections of Paul's writings. Mm -hmm. But it that's not what the purpose is, those are very small sections. Yeah, the actual big chunks of
1: it in the Old Testament, but. It's That's still true. nowhere near the most prevalent kind of writing.
0: The, What I would argue the purpose of your Bible is, is to explain the entirety of the gospel message which is the world was created by God to be perfect. Humans messed it up and I, I always describe it as scribbling all over God's picture. Jesus came so that Eventually, the picture can be fixed. And finally, at the end of it, we get to see the fixed picture. And so, scripture as a whole just falls into those sections when I read it. That's that's the way that I see it. It is the blueprint and the plan forward for how to redeem God's picture.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I I agree with that. The way that I normally put it, the illustration I use... Is um, God designed the world like this beautiful machine and we decided to use it wrongly and we broke it. So I'll I'll use in when I'm preaching the shorthand, we broke the universe because that sounds very grandiose. And it is. It is very grandiose uh, as it should be. So, you know, God made a refrigerator and we tried to use it as a microwave and we broke it. That's kind of the picture the Bible paints. And then it tells this long winding story that teaches us all these things about humans and about God and about our place in the universe and God's place in the universe and everything that's wrong in the universe and gives us at least pieces of a path forward. How, how do we, how do we fix the machine? How do we, how do we fix the painting or rather, how do we get out of the way and allow God to fix things and partner with him and help where we can. Um, stealing a phrase from Tim Mackey because it's a beautiful way of describing the Bible that works very, very well. They use it all the time over at the Bible Project. The Bible is, especially the Old Testament, is Jewish meditation literature. So it's a collection of books that teaches all the things we just said, but it's designed for you to read it. And when you read it, it assumes that you've already read it. So you read it the first time, it makes no sense. You read it the second time and you start getting some references it's making and understanding some themes you read it the third time and oh now you're now you're making more connections and the idea of it is it's designed intricately for you to read it alone and with others for your entire life 50 60 100 times 1000 times and to always draw something new out of it about human beings about morality about god so that's the point of the bible for you to return to it over and over again see who you are, who God is, what the world's like and how to fix things.